The first question I wanted to ask you was, what do you mean by the term, the public imagination? And how would you evaluate its state of health in 2021? In 2021, I think the importance of a public imagination has never been more significant. I'm an old union organizer. So the way you get a public imagination is that you organize from the ground up and that you get people together to begin to see a common world. And that's what a union drive is. That's what it means to be in union. And so that in order to be in union, you have to have that ability to get people together to begin to see a world in common. So in 2021, in the United States, that happened to quite a degree. Um, and just one second, Robert. Now my dog is barking. Um, um, not been the best morning in my life. Um, so uh, in 2021, you saw the mobilization of the Sanders campaign beginning to create that kind of public imagination. An imagination which says that capitalism doesn't rule the world and that we can actually challenge economic structures. And if we don't have the ability to challenge economic structures, then we don't have the ability to change the, the way we live together socially. So that's what I mean by public imagination. It's when, you know, like, I'll give you an example from my union work. Um, you know, when we started the campaign, we were working under terribly unsafe conditions. I was working in the acid room and, and the acid room was such that we had no protective clothing and um, no ability whatsoever to um, even work safely. And, and things caught on fire all the time. This is a Silicon Valley you never hear about. It's a Silicon Valley of slaves, uh, slave labor. Um, and that's where I began my union campaign. So what we did is mobilize ourselves to call an OSHA, Occupational Self and Healthy Act. Of course, we don't really have that anymore. So what has happened um, in that moment, we began to see ourselves as worthy of being treated safely. And that's what I mean by a common world. And it always demands organization. And the organizing has to be democratic and from within, because that's what changes the way people see things. Wonderful. You, we're, so we're, we're doing this interview a couple of days after the end, the fall of the House of Trump. Uh, would you, uh, what, what would you say that the Trump years have done to the public imagination? In your article, you wrote that uh, that he literally, his, his, his um, government literally threatens the imagination with death. And I know Henry Giroux, who is a, an activist, he talks about the Trump disimagination machine. I wonder for you, wh wh why, why does he threaten the imagination with death and how does, how does he do it? How did he do it? He threatened the public imagination. What did he appeal to? It's a nostalgia for white supremacy and a world in which white men have their entitlements and 
feel like they can be men again. And why? Because we no longer have a unionized workforce. I, I will send you an article I wrote um, on my years of union activism. So in a way, uh, the public imagination was destroyed by Trump. The white supremacist imagination of the Confederate flag that white people will once again rule, not people, men. And we will go back to the old ways and women won't get pregnant and they won't have abortions and people won't have sex and there won't be sex education and men won't run away with 22 year olds. And, and that's why women got involved in Trump. He is appealing not to a public imagination. It's he's appealing to an imaginary, which is different, of white supremacy. So you can feel like a man again. Because if you look at who stormed the Capitol, that was white guys. My daughter works at the PS1 MoMA and the only people who don't comply with wearing a mask are white guys. You know, the workers have to say, you know, you have to put your mask on. I'm a man, I don't wear a mask. I mean, so because the unionized workforce no longer is there. That was the middle class in the United States. It was a unionized workforce. And we have pretty much done that in. Bill Clinton started, you know, I mean, this is why it's not just Democrats versus Republicans. The outsourcing of American industry um, is part of the story. So what did Trump do in that rally? He said, be men. And so they stormed the Capitol. But see why I'm saying that's an imaginary that we can go back where black people aren't people and women aren't people and you know, and uh, transgendered and gay and lesbians aren't people. And then it's just men because we can't give them a stable job. We can't give them a job in a union with health insurance. So what does he do? So I want you to make that distinction between a forward-looking public imagination, which builds towards a future and a different way of seeing things, and someone who appeals to a nostalgia of what never was, except we did have a civil war, and uh, they were willing to risk everything to keep slaves which is a crime against humanity. This country, I, I don't think you're in the United States, but this country was built around slavery, including the constitution. That's why we had the federal courts, the electoral college, all of these are institutions to keep black people out in part. So that's an distinction I really want you to make. He appeals to an imaginary. I've want to build a public imagination. So Trump and I are at odds with my <laughs> You are the opposite, the yin and the yang. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are the factors? So you've talked about the, the, the decline or the, the um, yeah, the contraction of, uh, of unionism. Are there other factors that you think are damaging to the public imagination? What are the other factors in 2021 that would be additionally causing it to contract a public imagination? You're talking to a union activist. So one of the things that 
unions do. I mean, not so much in, in uh, 2021, although my daughter was a union leader at PS1 MoMA and then was on the negotiating committee. We have lost a lot of our basic rights. The right to strike is fundamental to a strong union movement. We no longer protect that. You don't have the right to strike, then you have to do all six ways to Sunday forms of manipulation, sick-ins, uh, you know, there's creative ways to handle it. So we've lost most of our labor rights. So in this article, which I'll send you, Rob, it, I describe, but still in my day, a wildcat strike, which I led with another woman in Silicon Valley, could be declared a legitimate strike by the United Auto Workers. You couldn't do that today. So what's happened is we've chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, chipped away at union rights. Now, are there other forms of organization? Absolutely. And Black Lives Matter, for me, is a major insurgency. It's not, a, not just a demonstration. It's an insurgency against the history of white supremacy and the failure of Black Reconstruction after the Civil War, which was to create an agrarian democracy, the failure and deep sense of the civil rights movement, which was completely undermined. I mean, we finally get the Voter Rights Act and it gets completely undermined. So, and then we're in a third movement, which I would call a third reconstruction. If black people can finally be equal citizens. How are we doing? Well, not great, but you know, I, Biden is not a outright nutcase, uh, you know, which is what Trump is. I don't even and and uh, but is Trump is Biden a someone who is not going to go back to neoliberal capitalist policies? No, he's a neoliberal capitalist. You know, he's just a more decent person. I mean, he's sane. So I think that's what we have to, Black Lives Matter was formed by three women, three women who led such hell, hair raising hellish stories about their lives. And what did they do? They built Black Lives Matter. And that is a classic example of capturing a public imagination against mm. the nostalgia for white supremacy. Mm. Thank you. And you uh, you talk about, you quote Spinoza, you say that Spinoza teaches us that the imagination is always collective. And you suggest that uh, vital to the public imagination is more and more contact with others. Can you expand on why this is good for the imagination? Why more exposure to difference and people unlike us is so vital to a, a healthy public imagination. And I guess why increasingly social media and everybody going into bubbles where they just speak to people like them is so, is so potentially harmful. Well, you're talking to a technological dunce. Uh, you know, I didn't even know how to fit. I didn't even know how to hear you. I don't do Facebook. I don't do Twitter. I don't do any of it. Um, here's the problem with it. There, there's two kinds of freedom. Freedom to actually collectively transform your social world. That's freedom for me. Where we come together and we democratize the economy and end the horrific inequality. And that vision 
It's called socialism. Nobody knows what socialism is, including me, but uh, that vision that there's an alternative, I would call socialism with Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, so what happens when you have all the social media is people feel free, right? You can like, you can put your, your rear end on Facebook and you can put your, what you're eating for lunch. And so it makes, you know, when your dog went to the bathroom and you know, it's really exciting and it makes you feel free, but it's, it's not freedom uh, because that's the difference between a public notion of freedom where relations are together. And you know, all this cancellation culture you now people cancel their boyfriends. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. They cancel their friends and they cancel people they don't like. See, this makes you feel like you're empowered. But who are you canceling? You're canceling other people who don't have any power. So I think the Facebook, Twitter culture has given young people a sense that they're free. Meanwhile, they don't have jobs. They don't have unions. They don't have health insurance, you know? So they live in a totally precarious world where you can say, oh, I had a hamburger for lunch. And everybody's like, do you like that? I like that, wow, that's so exciting. And so I think we really have to see how in an odd way, this was Trump's world. Now he's been cut off everything um, because he incited, <laughs> he incited a mob riot. You know, um, so, you know, where these, the idea was to kidnap Nancy Pelosi. Fortunately, she got out of the building in time. So you see what I'm saying? That the difference is that isn't about imagination. That's almost like falling into the worst kind of empiricism. Mm. So if you, were, if you were to be advising Joe Biden and he was to say, we are going to make our intention for the next four years to make America imaginative again, uh, or to, you know, to help America become more, ima more imaginative again. What would you suggest he do? What would be the key steps to starting to rebuild a public imagination? Well, the first thing, you know, just because I'm an on the ground type is pass all 11 of Bernie Sanders legislative proposals, um, which is a Green New Deal, the um, erasure of all student debt. Um, of course, his $2,000 a month, which he put forward first um, in the, the economic recovery. Now, why is, that, why is this important? Because people need to see that what get called now progressive Democrats actually have gotten much more empowered because of Bernie Sanders. So the first thing we do is we continue to march in the street for Black Lives Matter because black um, people continue to be killed by the police and nothing's changed. And the police haven't been defunded and we haven't reorganized what we think of as security. Um, all that needs to be done. So in a certain way, we have to be out in the streets and then to the degree you're into electoral politics, pass the Sanders bills. Biden is a moderate, but he's been pushed so far to the left. Kamala Harris was a prosecutor 
which was for the death penalty in California, hardly are we going to see from them the leadership that I'm calling rebuilding the public imagination. But Sanders, the squad, the, the young people in the House, to the degree you want to be in electoral politics, and I think we have to at times, um, they are challenging the institutional structures. This is why insurrection, insurgency have been captured in the media by the right. An insurrection is against the fundamental institutions and values. What we saw was no insurrection. It was a mob riot of men, you know, and white men carrying Confederate flags, you know, wishing that the Confederacy wanted black people were slaves. They were so much better as slaves. That, you know, that's not an insurrection. So we have to, I'm actually writing a book now called Today's Struggles, Tomorrow Insurgencies. We have to keep the insurgencies going. Part of that's electoral, part of that is saying, pass Sanders bills, Medicare for all, enough of people not being able to buy insulin. You know, just enough. And is it socialism? No, but it's kind of social democracy. I mean, Trump calls everybody a socialist. Um, and in fact, most of the people aren't socialists. So, it's very important to me that we keep the momentum of movements in the streets. Mm, mm, mm. Um, uh, and you talk about the importance of public spaces. Can you expand what you mean by public spaces? It's very difficult. This, this takes us back to Facebook um, and Twitter, right? Those are supposedly public spaces. But nobody's face to face and nobody's organizing and nobody's meeting and nobody's debating. And so I think the question of public space has never been more difficult. You know, again, getting back to my union activism, when you organize a union, you create a public space within the employment area. Now, of course, that's not possible anymore. When I first started organizing, employers had to have meetings with the union in the property during work hours. That was the National Labor Relations Act. So in a certain sense, I live in Greenwich Village. Um, one of the most interesting things that's happened in the pandemic is restaurants opening outside spaces. And those outside spaces are often used for meetings in a pandemic when everybody's quarantined. So, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. We're the only city that's really done this. So we need to create public spaces where people can meet. And, and ironically, one of them is now outside um, restaurants where people can get together and talk about where Black Lives is going or the Sanders bills. So we have to be very creative about it and get people off the internet. Now you might say, well, she just wants everybody off the internet so she never has to go on it again. <laughs> I, I would admit that's probably the case. Um, uh, but we need to be really creative right now about what public space is. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, uh, when, like I said, when you get a union drive going, of course the states, because we no longer could turn a workplace into a site 
where the employers had to meet the union people. Um, we have to think creatively about it. I'm very proud of my daughter for organizing PS1 MoMA. I don't know if you know the museum, but right now it has a, a prisoner's abolitionist exhibit up, which all the art is done by prisoners, 90% of it. Wow. But the content and the form and the way the workers are treated, of course, were completely different. Could PS1 be a public space? Well, the answer is it sort of is and it sort of isn't. It does warm up, it does night at the museum, it attracts young people. But could it be a much more political public space, which is what it was set up to be by the person who founded it? Yes. She took over a, a school that was deserted and turned it into a free a studio space for artists who were leftist and then work together. So I think we have to think very creatively about where and when we can find public spaces. Mm -hmm. And would you, is it fair to suggest that people on the left tend to be more imaginative than people on the right? Is there any evidence to back up such a suggestion? Uh, let's say some people on the left are more imaginative. In my youth, I was in four Marxist-Leninist organizations, and I was kicked out of all of them for being, one of my favorite was, I was a deviationist idealist. <laughs> so, um, I think, and a deviationist idealist is definitely somebody who's trying to build a public imagination. I think the left has a horrible time moving forward because it became very, very fancy and entitled to do critiques. And nobody wanted to do old fashioned things like programs, like CLR James, you know, he laid out a whole program, created a, new, a movement in Antigua and Trinidad, which almost took power, uh, called the New Beginning Movement. The New Beginning Movement is a classic example of a left imagination. They organized in two of the islands and almost took power and they were on the ground. Now, new beginning, I love the time, I love it, but this is a real movement. What happens in the left in the United States, particularly the academic left? So it became very passionate, you know, the ideas, theory is to critique, and then we fight for hegemony. What do we fight for hegemony for? New Beginning says we fight for some version of socialism and against racialized capitalism and for a kind of egalitarian participatory democracy, which no one's ever experienced, but they did it on the ground. So we need to remember our nostalgia. It's not nostalgia, it's to look at the great revolutionary movements in the 70s and 80s. And my guess is you've never heard of New Beginnings because it was a black movement on an island in the Caribbean. So the whole way that theories become, I don't know if you're familiar with Afro-pessimism or all politics, et cetera, normative. Um, you know, the, when you're an academic and you have a job and in health insurance, it's really easy to say, black people are socially dead. I've got, I'm married to a nice white girl and I've got health insurance, what's the problem? Um, I'm not gonna march in the streets, certainly. So, and then you have, you know, Lee Edelman saying, 
oh, our politics is heteronormative. So, you know, he had health insurance too. So the way in which the academy pulled back and said, oh, all these dreamers, we can't really deal with them. What did that do? What is Afro-pessimism? You saying black people are socially dead when they, they've created a movement that's a major insurgency in the United States? I mean, you're socially dead. I mean, because, and see, that's a problem with left academics. They withdraw, retreat, and then like Janet Halley, taking a break from feminism. I'll take a break from feminism when women finally have reproductive rights and maternity leave. As a union organizer, I fought and fought and fought and fought for maternity leave, and I never won. So in that way, I think we need to look at movements like the New Beginnings and the incredible uh, influence they had in two islands in the Caribbean and think about their forms of organizing and their forms of participatory democracy. And then we see a leftist imagination. Um, we do not need any more Marxist-Leninist parties. That's done. We do not need any men telling us, like, you know, Stalin, I know the truth of dialectical materialism. We don't need that. But I do think right now um, the left often backs away from real alternatives. We need alternatives. We need answers to things like, are we going to have a stock market and socialism? We need answers to those types of questions. So I think the answer is the left needs to be pushed. I'm writing a book after this current one called Thinking Like an Activist. Activists constantly push open spaces for the imagination. And, you know, I would encourage you to look at the New Beginnings movement, mm -hmm. which you know, it's not like, you know, 1650. I mean, it was in the 1970s and 80s. Um, I'm, I'm always very interested in, in movements that manage to keep really big, bold, what-if questions alive, which is kind of what you're talking about, I think. And I love, think, you know, things like the the prison abolition movement who've kept that what if question alive for so long uh, in the face of a society that would just thinks is completely unimaginable. What would, what would be the key sort of learnings from that about how to sustain big and bold audacious question, what if questions alive over time? You know, like you were saying with um, get, getting maternity cover and prison, prison abolition is a bigger what if question, I guess, but how do we sustain those over time? You know, maternity leave should hardly be a revolutionary question. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Society, I never want it. I, and, and I, uh, I, I'll send you this article about my history as a union activist. I think the way we do it is there's a, a wonderful book by one of the women who started Black Lives Matter. And um, she writes about stardust people, which is an accurate description of a human being. The universe is not only with us, it's in us. We are literally carry cells of dead stars and I think we have to think like stardust people, like she did, and create Black Lives Matter is not just about police violence. 
It's about black people being equal citizens in the United States. That's a that shouldn't be a big idea either. That should be kind of like maternity leave. But unfortunately, it's not. So I think what we have to do is think like an activist. Think like someone who is whole life is about building a transformed world. And therefore, your theory is about what you learn in the street. Not what you learn in books, but what you learn in the street. And that's, I think, exemplary in Black Lives Matter. So we don't, we're not going to get bold ideas from people who are in universities and don't like to go to demonstrations because they might be hit by the police. You know, and we need people who have the courage to be in the streets. I've been an activist all my life. I consider being an academic that important. You know, it, it's uh, when right after, I'll give you an example because I think examples help. After 9-11 um, in, in New York City, but the, uh, the Patriot Act was passed, which basically ended our constitutional rights um, and the Fourth and Fifth Amendment. And I had a friend, Ann Snittow, and we um, wanted to support the Revolutionary Association of Afghan Women, another one of those groups with big ideas. That yes, they ran gynecological clinics under the Taliban, and yes, they ran schools, and yes, they did armed self-defense. Um, because you imagine going out to the Taliban saying, hi, I just wanted to discuss why women need that. <laughs> doesn't work. Um, so, so no uh, communicative freedom, uh, as Habermas believes, um, can exist in those situations. So yes, they did armed self-defense. So we defended them to be on the ballot in Afghanistan. We didn't win. And yet feminism is all about not wearing a headscarf. I dye my hair. What woman knows what the hell she's doing with her hair? You know, you do the best you can. But, you know, I mean, headscarf? Oh, I don't have to wear a headscarf. I'll just go to the hairdresser and make sure that my gray is covered. You know, what was that as freedom? That's this whole fantasy of individual freedom. Freedom would have been getting the Revolutionary Association of Afghan Women had underground network and a government into the government of Afghanistan. That would have been freedom. And you see what we did out of that, we formed a group called Take Back the Future, in which we expanded the definition of feminism to include anyone who was thrown below the bar of what was considered human. We marched with Muslim communities who were being forced to re-register even though they had green cards. We marched with African-American families whose sons were being told, you get to go to war, you get to go to prison. And we saw those as feminist issues. And it's called Take Back the Future. See, that's a big idea. Mm-hmm. We take back the future. And my comrade, Ann Snittow, is no longer with us, so this is also a tribute to her. Because in the face of total opposition from a lot of left academics, who all of a sudden spoke Arabic and knew something about Islam. Do you know what I knew? I didn't know anything about Islam. But I later taught for two years a class on Islamic jurisprudence with somebody who was my student who was a specialist in Islamic jurisprudence. Because I realized I didn't know anything. But these people say, oh, you know, this is that, this is that, this is that. I know what the prophet said. Well, I didn't know what the prophet said. 
So we did take back the future in enormous opposition to the left. That said, oh, the Revolutionary Association Afghan women are terrorists. But what is the book called by one of the women who found it, Black Lives Matter, when they call you a terrorist? So that's what I mean by take back the future, challenge limited views of feminism to open it up to anti-Muslim and anti-racist uh, politics. And that's, that's what you do. And that's how you do it. You, you go. You have to have the courage to go into the streets and fight. You know, you can't just sit around and write books. I write a lot of books, I admit. But I like to think they help. But that organization, Take Back the Future, went completely against the grain of how feminism was being defined, how anti-racist politics were being defined, how Muslims were being defined. And that's a group I'm terribly proud of. And that's a recent group for me. I also formed a group called the Ubuntu Project in South Africa. And all of this forming project, organizing, is about changing the world. What did Marx say? The purpose of philosophy is not to understand the world, it's to transform it. Mm-hmm. You, you wrote in that article, a, a, I thought it was fantastic, you said a powerful new left can only create a rich collective imagination capable of front, confronting this crisis by opening ourselves to new forms of contact that will allow us to be affected by and imagine others in new ways. I thought it was fantastic. Is there anything you'd like to add to that or reflect on that? Well, again, it gets back. Let's let's take the example of Take Back the Future, right? Feminism was being seen on the side of so-called overthrow of the Taliban, which we know never happened. But by redefining what feminism is and joining feminism to movements. Now, one of the key things about this group is we had a giant dragon that was eating the constitution that was made in paper mache. And people wanted the dragon at all these demonstrations. Now, why is that important to this? Because you're performing something. You're performing why the United, uh, the Patriot Act ate up the constitution with the dragon. And we used to go just to take back the streets because you can actually demonstrate in New York City without a permit. We would go with the dragon in front of like uh, rush hour train stations and show what it meant to be eating the constitution to provoke discussion. So in that way, rush hours and people running home would never be seen as a public space, but we turned it into one. So that's what I'm really trying to uh, emphasize is you have to be creative. Take Back the Future is one of the groups that I formed, but then I um, formed the Ubuntu Project almost at the same time in South Africa and I moved to South Africa because I knew that I had to learn about indigenous values, what it means to be an anti-racist, doesn't stop with protests in the United States. You have to think about what decolonization means. You have to think about what it means to really fight imperialism. 
So I formed a project. I, I didn't know anything about Ubuntu. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a sociologist. So I went to the ground. And I worked for a Sangoma. He said, you want to know about Ubuntu? Come work for me. That's a high spiritual level in South Africa. When you put yourself at risk and everything you know at risk and have the courage to say, I don't know, that's when you learn new things. And I'm very proud of the Ubuntu project. Uh, so in the, throughout the 2000s, I've been organizing. And I intend to go down organizing. <laughs> I guess, so my last question was really, is capitalism by design uh, something that is damaging to the imagination? Is it inherently kind of uh, a creation, yeah, that is ruinous to the imagination? Capitalism per se or neoliberal capitalism? You choose. Okay. Well, what capitalism does, you know, I'm a quasi-Marxist, is it turns exploitation into the fantasy of a free labor, right? And then what the Keynesian model said is, well, we have to give these so-called free laborers something because otherwise they can't buy anything. So, and that was the Keynesian model, you know, after World War II. But does capitalism per se limit the imagination? Of course it does. And it becomes neoliberal capitalism. That's what Rosa Luxemburg told us, that primitive accumulation of capital doesn't stop. It needs war. It needs the indentured servitude who are making our computers, the ones that I hate, um, in, in South Korea and in China, uh, with women workers who are making slave wages, which is how I started out in Silicon Valley. I know what it's like to be a disorder. And so I think the answer is yes. And the other book capitalism then gives you what I said earlier, these little like carrots. You can put your name on tweet and Twitter and you can and show what you ate and where your dog went to the bathroom and all of these great freedom because they can't provide what people need. People need meaningful labor. This is what Marx told us. That what happens in capitalism is people see freedom going to a bar, freedom going to a soccer game, freedom now doing Facebook and Twitter. What they don't see is that real freedom is the unleashing of human creativity in what we call work. And then of course, work would be totally different. Work would be where you were creating. And that's what New Beginning got in its reorganization of workplaces. Reorganize workplaces and then a sugar worker who's making sugar begins to see what making sugar is all about and why it may be important. And so that limit it's something that is not overcomable under capitalism. We need to mm. democratize the economy. And then when we democratize the economy, maybe we can slowly begin to figure out what a different form of economic organization is, where you wouldn't think 
that freedom at the end of the day is going getting drunk because you hate your job so much and your boss is a total asshole and you can't organize a union because you don't have rights anymore. So I think that Marx had it right. Human beings at some level at the core are creative creatures. Thank you so much. Wonderful.